We rounded off our visit with lunch in the staff canteen right next to the power station, which was a surreal experience. Then it was time to leave, just time to purchase a glow-in-the-dark Chernobyl fridge magnet. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Housekeeping. Important. My time in Glasgow is, barring nuclear meltdown, coming to a possibly temporary end. For reasons not all of which are to do with anything in my own life or circumstances, I'm moving to Manchester in the middle of next month. It's going to be a complete change of vibes, lifestyle and livelihood, mainly because I'm once again going to be living in the same apartment as someone else. And by someone else, long-time listeners will know there's arguably only one person I know in my life who's got the wherewithal to cope with me being close by. And this time, she's going to make it last longer than two months. Otherwise, I'm stuck in an even more expensive flat than I am now, in an urban area I have less vibe with. No pressure. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, there's a number of reasons for the move, to be honest. For me, the main two are a combination of convenience and accountability. I really like it here in Glasgow. It's quite green, like, you know, Queen's Park. It's a few minutes away, and I've been wandering around at early doors a couple of mornings a week with my backpack and listening to podcasts. And the area's a very chill place, and, you know, it's a short stagger for me to... Both get a craft beer shop bar and a Greg's. And supermarkets don't close at 4pm on a Sundays because we're less stuck in the 1800s up here. And lots of other things and reasons that make Scotland culturally and socially more on my wavelength than England. And where I'm moving to, eh, let's be honest, it's less than pretty. But with regards to convenience, remember that as a travel podcaster... There's fewer opportunities to meet with brands and organisations up here, and indeed other travel podcasters and the rest of the community. Most of the get-togethers are in London, and those that aren't, they tend to never go much further north than Manchester or Leeds. And even there are good, you know, three and a half to four and a half hours away by train or coach. Whereas from Manchester, even the London events won't be much more than about two and a half hours away, so it makes a lot easier for me to, well, socialise. Also, within an hour of Manchester Piccadilly, there's pretty much the same number of people as in the whole of Scotland including possibly my mother. Shame I can't drive. And where I'm moving to is very central, like I can walk to Manchester's Arndale shopping centre in less than 10 minutes, which, I mean, Shortlands is very nice and convenient, but that's a freaking city centre right there with all that that entails. Things may be slightly further, but I already know there's a brew pub, not just a craft beer shop, an actual brew house about a kilometre away, and surely that counts for something. My nearest parkrun's starting point is a mile away rather than the kilometre it is now, so slightly further, but still not two buses away like when I lived in Kirkby and Ashfield, or Sheffield, though the latter was my choice. I've no idea if that parkrun's suitable for barefoot running, mind, because I've never been there. Good quality paths, says the blurb. Not that I'm running much at the moment anyway, but you get the idea. As for accountability... Having someone there who can mentally push me to socialise, to write, to keep fitter will be a great benefit because it's just so easy to lounge back into meh, I don't feel like doing this today mode if I don't have that external push. As you all know, I find it difficult to push myself internally. It also means going straight into somewhere where I already know someone. But as it happens, I know quite a few people in the Manchester area. More than I ever knew in the Nottinghamshire area despite living there for 14 years. Never mind Glasgow. So that'll also help. I've also already started to make connections for other hobbies, mainly on Discord, obviously. Well, I need a social media change if Twitter becomes completely unusable or empty in the near future. But having Laura around will help me do that. And regarding my personal identity, it appears that Manchester is used to people like me who don't conform to many of societal's norms. So that's good to know. Anyway, I've been taking advantage of my last few weeks in the area up here and some it's not actually raining weather to keep on my walks around the Greater Glasgow area. Last week, for instance, I headed up to Cumbernauld because I'd never been there. And one of my travel tweeps says she'd changed trains there a few months back and was curious to know what it was like. I have now been there. Then, on Saturday, I ventured back into Inverclyde to see if I could get to a peculiar railway station. Called, or at least it used to be called IBM Holt, later simply IBM, it serves, or served, the Spango Valley Business Park, just south of Greenock, and is, 
or was, one of those special-purpose railway stations that serve a specific entity rather than a town centre or a residential area. There's a handful of similar stations around the country, including Limpstone Commando in Devon that serves a rural marine training centre, and Stanlow and Thornton in Cheshire that serves an oil refinery. Public access to these stations is technically possible, but generally unlikely since there's no actual reason to, and the access paths or roads are generally within the confines of the complex they serve. IBM Holt, named because of the business park was mostly an IBM centre, is a little unusual though, and not just because for some of its life its existence wasn't even acknowledged in timetables or station announcements. Throughout the 2010s, IBM slowly moved out, and while new businesses moved in, less and less of the complex ended up being used. Indeed, the entire business park had been demolished by late summer 2020. Meanwhile, due to falling passenger numbers and increased levels of vandalism, ScotRail stopped serving the railway station in December 2018. They didn't close it. So it's technically still an open station, but no train stops there now, neither scheduled nor unscheduled. I did manage to reach it. The business park is now a derelict mass of broken concrete, cut-through chicken wire fencing, generic rubble and metal shards. I was not barefoot on this urbex adventure, you may be relieved to know. I was wearing sandals, though. There's three roads to the business park itself. It's quite a long space. All three are blocked off with a mound of rubble to prevent cars going through, and one of them has a huge locked metal gate preventing access. Or would prevent access if someone hadn't cut the wire fence next to the gate. Inside the complex, you can clearly see where the buildings once stood. The foundations and layouts would make the whole thing look from above a little bit like a floor plan. The roads are mostly obviously laid out, and some of the car parking still has the delineations painted on the tarmac. Indeed, the hardest part was finding a way to get to the station. There's no signposts, no obvious access point, no maps. But I did make it to the bridge, down a weird forest road covered in what might have been slate, which came off the main station car park and looked for all the world like it just went to a farm. Which, to be fair, it does. And looked out over it. It's a single platform, still in pretty good nick, but access to it specifically has been fenced off. It's going to need a lot of renovation if they ever reopen it. Now, you may be sat there wondering, hey, BB, why are you talking at so much length about a derelict business park in Scotland? Well, given the subject of this pod, if you're interested in abandoned places and urban exploration, it's proof you don't have to always find the site of an ecological disaster to do it. Though, for legal reasons, I ought to say I'm not influencing nor recommending you do this especially in a country that is not your own. And just because Spango Valley doesn't seem to have security patrols there doesn't mean that everywhere is equally as simple to access. I am not a role model. Anyway, this podcast episode is all about Chernobyl. It's an episode I've had pencilled in to do for quite some time, if in part because I went there in 2014 and never wrote anything about my visit at the time, so I felt I ought to, you know, get round to it at some point. I even mentioned this in a podcast I did last year, back in the USSR. Didn't do it then either, because, and I quote, I think if I did it would make the pod much longer than I'd intended. In any case, it probably deserves its own discussion. I guess this is that discussion. Now, I'm sure you all know about Chernobyl. It's one of those places and events that's become significant in culture as well as history, like Pearl Harbour. Even if you don't know the precise details, you know the basics and the significance, regardless of how old you are or where you live. But just in case you need a refresher... Chernobyl, the name coming from the old Slavic language Chorny, meaning black, and bull, meaning grass, and meaning as a whole, not at all ominously, but conspiracy theorists will theorise, wormwood, which in normal people's everyday life is more commonly associated with absinthe rather than falling stars or angels turning a third of the world's water bitter and green. Though, again, absinthe does fit that bill, hence the name. In this case, it's a town, and previously a rayon, the Soviet and post-Soviet admin level, roughly analogous to a district. Which makes Chernobyl City, with a population of about 14,000, similar to, and half the size of, my old hometown of Kirkby and Ashfield, capital of Ashfield Borough. There the similarities end. Possibly. Anyway, it's a mostly forested region near the Dnieper River, slightly out of the way, 90 kilometres north of Kiev in a straight line. A signpost at the 10 kilometre exclusion zone says by road it's 131. And it's a border region with what was at the time the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, or SSR. 
The area has been definitively populated since the end of the 12th century, but its location was seen as ideal for construction of a nuclear power station in 1972, the first such in what was then the Ukrainian SSR. Near a river, easy to get to by land, yet far enough away from major population centres like Kiev for the to belay the fears of a minority of people who insisted that a nuclear power plant wasn't what you wanted directly on your doorstep. Because even though nuclear power is perfectly safe and nothing can go wrong with it, some people are just insistent. And even in the Soviet Union, sometimes the government listens. Or something. And nothing did go wrong. Until late April 1986. Actually, that's a lie. At least two incidents had occurred at the power plant earlier in the 1980s, unreported at the time, and largely ignored by those few who knew about them. And while both are reported to have resulted in the release of a noteworthy amount of radioactive material, the powers that be seem to think that either nothing else would go wrong, or that if it did, they'd be able to manage it as easily as they'd managed these two incidents. Ah, the naivety of humanity. Anyway, when it went wrong, it certainly went wrong. In late April 1986, one of the actors number four reactor, exploded after a critical meltdown, caused because of user error during, of all things, a safety test. Followed by a whole series of preventable occurrences, any one of which not happening would have stopped it there and then. This would have led to only a minor incident, a hushed disciplinary, prevented the USSR from disintegrating five years later, and causing this podcast episode to have been about something mundane, like, I don't know, dead railway stations or hiking barefoot in West Germany, or the Rwandan genocide, or something like that. The timeline of the explosion and the immediate aftermath is deserving of an episode of its own, though it's far beyond my scope. The BBC World Service did one there if you're interested. Indeed, I'm certain there must be a podcast all about Chernobyl specifically, and by that I don't necessarily mean the one connected with the recent TV series on HBO. There are a couple of important things to point out about the timeline and events, though, and this says something about human nature to never admit that things have gone wrong, or that someone's made a boo-boo, especially that someone happens to be you, though the actual users who erred in the safety test would not have been called in for their disciplinary afterwards, for, um, sadly obvious reasons. Firstly, the explosion took place on the 26th of April, a Saturday, at a local time of 1.23am. Most people in nearby Pripyat were asleep, and didn't notice anything was amiss until many fell quite ill later that day. The fires at Reactor 4 spread to Reactor 3, whose roof had been built with a combustible material, presumably because it was cheap, and who'd have thought nuclear reactors would catch fire? The fires were put out by the local fire brigade, many of whom died either on the day or within a couple of weeks from radiation-related effects, and they were put out by 5am, but note that this was also the time that management finally decided that shutting off Reactor Number 3 was a good idea. Yes, what happened was bad, but it could have been twice as bad. As an aside, the fire in the original reactor took around two weeks to burn out fully, all the while burning radioactive material. Also, while there was official denial that any radioactivity had leaked out at all at the very start, despite, you know, eyewitness reports that the thing was glowing blue at the time, the radiation detectors didn't function accurately. Whether this was because they were badly configured or the levels of radiation were so high they couldn't function is unclear. It wasn't until the evening of the next day, the 27th, that high enough officials in the USSR felt a need to discuss matters, and after visiting the site, suggested that maybe they ought to contemplate evacuating Pripyat just as a precaution, just temporarily, while the metaphorical and literal dust settled. By lunchtime the next day, coaches were on hand to ensure everyone could move, and by about 3pm the city was deserted for what was advertised as being about the next three days. They never returned obviously. And over the next couple of days, the evacuation area got wider. You might wonder what happened to all these people, by the way, as Pripyat wasn't a small town by any means. At the time of the explosion, it had a population of around 50,000 people, which would make it the 13th biggest town in Scotland as of now, larger than Perth, and just slightly smaller than Cumbernauld, a new town of similar period and provenance. Although having now been to both, I can honestly say that an explosion causing nuclear fallout could only improve the ambience of Cumbernauld. It's by no means the worst place I've ever been, <coughs> but it might rank as the ugliest. But anyway, 50,000 people is a lot to just dump on surrounding villages, and as the evacuation was deemed temporary, I guess it was never suggested that they moved everyone down to Kiev. In fact, they stayed in villages for a couple of years, but a new town was built to the east called Slavutich, after the local name for the Dnieper River, and people started moving there in October 1988. Interestingly, though on a 
direct rail link to Chernobyl, the line crossed the border with the Belarusian SSR twice. Which was fine at the time, since, you know, it'd be like going from New York City to Albany via New Jersey Highway 17, rather than the Taconic State Parkway. But three years later, in the breakup of the Soviet Union, makes that an international border. Note also that part of the reason for the delay in evacuating wasn't just because of a downplaying of the severity, but also a reluctance to admit there was a problem at all. Indeed, famously, the world, and by inference the Soviet public themselves, only found out about it because the Swedish government noticed a couple of days after the explosion that one of their plants had reported higher than expected levels of radiation. This was on the 28th of April. They did a recce. They realised it wasn't coming from their site, worked out that it had drifted westwards, and asked the Soviet government nicely if there was a problem. The Soviets said, Niet, obviously. And the Swedes said, Ah, well, in that case, you won't mind if we raise it with the International Atomic Energy Agency then. At which point the Soviets went, "Eh, Funny story, actually. Additionally, and also famously, a series of flights and helicopters took place over the burning reactor to dump as much sand and other radioactivity absorbing material in an effort to, if not quench the fire, at least prevent as much radioactivity leaking out as they possibly could. After a fashion, it worked, at least long enough so they could put a hood of concrete and steel on it. This hood stayed in place until after my visit. They were building its replacement while I was there. And it was replaced by the more modern structure scheduled to last until the mid-2060s. By which time, it becomes somebody else's problem. Despite some of the land being reclaimed by farming in the decades since, much of what became known as the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, which was originally all points around 30 kilometres from the power plant, but now covers an area of just over 2,500 square kilometres, or, for those Brits listening, slightly larger than Dorset. Um, And at the entrance to this, still called 30 kilometre zone, there's a checkpoint on the road, making sure everyone who goes in is registered and legally entitled to be there, and on leaving, that everyone who entered in that party or group is still with that party or group, and that no one is sneaking out with any radioactivity on them. I'm not quite sure what happens if you have. While it's beyond my pay grade and responsibility to cast aspersions on the security at the 30km border, it's notable that there are a number of villages inside it which are still populated, despite everyone having been evacuated 30 years ago. I'll mention this more later, but I wonder how many cuttings in the wire fences there are, or even how much of it even fenced. There's another zone, far stricter one, located 10 kilometres or thereabouts from the power plant, that's much stricter in scope. While there are justifiable reasons to be in the 30 kilometre zone, for example, Chernobyl City itself is here, for instance, the 10 kilometre zone includes pretty much only the power plant itself and the town of Pripyat, so there's no reason for anyone to be there who isn't either working at the plant or a tourist on an official group visit. As to how long the area will take to return to safe levels for human agriculture and housing, Although some tentative steps have already been made, including the manufacture of vodka, what else? And excluding those people who returned despite the restrictions, no one's really quite sure since we don't have a control cell, obviously. The Ukrainian government have suggested a few hundred years, while environmental organisations have put a figure of a hundred times that. Either way, it won't be in your lifetime. Pripyat itself was built out of concrete, mainly, and without maintenance, that tends to have a lifespan of around 100 years. Although given the lack of structural integrity, as in there are trees growing through it, and the places in a region that gets cold, snowy winters, so ice will form, expand, melt, and crack the concrete still further, it's likely many of the buildings will collapse much sooner. Indeed, as you'll hear, some of them are already too dangerous to visit inside. Even if we did... It was a bright but overcast week in Liverpool following the explosion at Chernobyl, with occasional rain showers. I know this, as I distinctly recall having a PE lesson in the large playground and sheltering under the canopy of one of the doors in when it started raining, and all I was wondering about whether it was acid rain or not. Future me was very aware of the very great differences in environmental problems between radioactivity and dodgy chemicals. However, contemporary me was ten and three-quarter years old and was aware of buzzwords, but not how they all fitted together. I don't recall how he knew of what happened, in the sense that I knew it was on the news, but I don't remember how the storyline had developed. Of course, everything in those days that came out of the Soviet Union was subject to a layer of, we have been informed that, with added, people monitoring these things are reporting. And obviously, this means spies, but also places closer who were picking up radio signals from behind the Iron Curtain, etc. It was not quite as, you know, (laughs) authentic as reporting is these days. And disappointingly for this podcast, apart from that acid rain confusion, 
I don't seem to remember anything else about the incident at the time. Not because my memory is lacking from the period, but more because it was an adult thing to worry about, and I, as a mere child who had grown up with news reports and documentaries about where, if the Soviets launched their nukes, they would aim for, close to home this would have been the Stanlow Oil Refinery near Ellesmere Port. Anyway, I was a kid and I had other things to think of. Primarily, would I manage to film my Panini football sticker album? Spoiler, I did. And how was I going to feel at leaving primary school and go to big school after the summer holidays? Spoiler, badly enough about it to need to be in therapy 35 years later. But back to Chernobyl. While it itself didn't seem to enter my consciousness as much of a public event at the time, it did lodge itself there as an indexable event. By which I mean, it's one of those events that I lived through for which I had a reference point for, and which I always remembered having happened years later. And this may have been helped by the many charity events and collections that took place both in the immediate aftermath and in the years beyond. I moved to Ashfield in 2005, and even then in Sutton Ashfield, there was a charity shop on the main street calling itself Chernobyl Children, raising money for people who, by then, would have been having their own children. And if you start thinking to yourself, surely every event happens that leads you to having the same levels of recall, I'd like to point out that I have more memory of Chernobyl than of the 2001 general election in the UK. While I don't recall much of the story from the time, I do recall the what, in the same way that I can remember John Lennon being shot. And J.R., but not the Pope, nor Ronald Reagan, despite them all happening within a short time frame. Whereas with many stories, I don't even remember the headline, like, oh, I didn't know he died, I don't remember his death. To be fair, the 2001 UK general election was pretty boring and inconsequential. Irrespective of Chernobyl and my memories of it, I've always had a fascination with what you might call dark history. Visiting places where people had left a stain on the world, mainly. A couple of years earlier I'd been to the killing fields in Cambodia. Later in 2014 I visited both the newly independent state of Timor-Leste and what remained of the Aral Sea in Uzbekistan. I always found it both fascinating and slightly soul-destroying to stand in a spot where something important or catastrophic had happened, not just for reasons of seeing the places for myself, but also to get a greater understanding of the context. It's something that's hard to get from just a history book or a TV documentary. As for Chernobyl itself, well, I'd never really given it much thought, mainly because I always assumed it was a place I'd never be able to go. Then, when it became clear that I could and that there were tour groups offering the service, it quickly became a, oh, I need to go here, spot. As you'll already know, I visited while travelling across the westernmost part of the former Soviet Union in May 2014 on a trip from Bucharest in Romania to Vilnius in what is now Lithuania, as detailed in my previous podcast episode, episode 55, and because it was literally directly in the way, it made sense to go. Three of my tweeps who've also been to Chernobyl gave me contributions for this episode, and you'll hear them scattered around. But they firstly said why they wanted to go in the first place. First up is Helen Matthews, travel writer and Brad Guide author. I visited Chernobyl in August 2017. I was a sixth former when the disaster happened in 1986. Later, someone I know hosted children from Chernobyl for holidays. So I was always quite intrigued by Chernobyl, but I think it was seeing some images of the abandoned amusement park that finally spurred me on to see for myself. My second contributor is Jane Spurin, who can be found online at Jane's Midlife Journey. I visited the Ukraine in October 2019, my last trip before Covid hit. We stayed in Kiev with a friend who's married to a Ukrainian. I'm a history nerd. I love to visit places with, where key events in history, events that shaped the world we live in, took place. So obviously Chernobyl was right at the top of my bucket list. I was 19 when the Chernobyl disaster happened and at university studying East European studies. I can remember watching events unfold with horror. Over 30 years later in the area, is pretty much still uninhabited and inside a heavily guarded 30-kilometre exclusion zone. Estimates on when it will be habitable again range from between 320,000 years. Finally, we have Jess Harling, who blogs, well, Instagrams these days, at Jess Travels. The reason I wanted to go, uh, well, first of all, I wanted to visit Ukraine. I'd heard some really good things, so we spent some time in Kiev as well. But also, I just like to learn about various parts of history that, um, you know, I feel... the Chernobyl disaster wasn't covered at school. It's something I just learned about. I don't know, it's one of those things you just know and you don't know how you know about it. Um, it I must have seen a, a TV documentary about it and it's just something that you know happened. Um, but I kind of wanted more details and 
Um, it's kind of how I use travel in general is, you know, I like to learn about history and cultures um, by actually visiting the place because I think there's no better way to learn. Um, so, yeah, that was my main reasons for going. And then the other reason, I suppose, is I have a bit of a fascination with what most people would call probably dark tourist sites. Um, so I find um, abandoned places just fascinating um, and uh, obviously Pripyat's an entire town that is abandoned which you can visit which normally uh, you don't get an opportunity to do very often. I went with an organisation then known as Chernobyl Welcome branded as ChernobylWell.com who have since rebranded as ChernobylX. Nothing to do with Twitter X. There were a group of 16 of us in total mostly if I recall people from around my age who'd been alive at the time even if they didn't necessarily remember it. I do recall one chap from Czechia who had a 1960s camera, a bulky thing with film that only took 10 pictures. He'd take a pic with a digital camera, make sure it was right, then he'd take a shot with a film camera. Yes, he agreed it was awkward to carry and expensive to use, but he assured us the quality of the final pictures was excellent. We never saw if he was right or not, obviously. Anyway, they offered a few different tours of varying lengths, from a day trip to a specific trip for photographers, I think that was just under a week. I chose one that was two days, pick up and drop off at the main railway station in Kiev, with one night spent in a hotel in Chernobyl City. I don't now recall much about that hotel, save that we were in twin-bedded rooms, sharing a room, how uncouth, and it had the vibe of a glorified youth hostel. Beige, brown wall colours and decor, two storeys, a rectangular box. Forgettable, but we weren't there for a hotel exploration. Additionally, the road there is quite long and straight, and mostly there's nothing to see but trees, so this is one place where the excursions definitely the most exciting bits. There were a number of rules and regulations around the trip, but the one that most affected me was that you had to wear closed shoes, long sleeves and long pants. Sandals were banned, never mind bare feet. I'd thought this was down to as much as possible preventing radioactive particles getting onto the skin, and while this might have been true, not long after arriving I realised another reason too. Debris and broken glass everywhere. While I went off with an organised tour company, and it wouldn't have occurred to do it any other way, Jess had a more intimate and personalised experience. She also points out something important to be conscious of when visiting places like this. I went to Chernobyl um, in Ukraine in December 2017. I was with my boyfriend at the time and my friend, and we used a um, private tour guide um, who was a young Ukrainian guy. Um, and so it was just us three and, and the guide um, so that was really great and gave us a lot more flexibility. We stayed um, one night, so it was two days, one night, the tour. So that gave us t- plenty of time to kind of see all the, the main highlights. Uh, something I'd like to note is that obviously when visiting places, especially like uh, Pripyat and Chernobyl, I always have to keep in mind that this is a site of a disaster where people died and um, obviously people had to flee their homes at a moment's notice. So there's a lot of pain linked to these places for for people so I do keep that that in mind um, when I visit so yeah my brain is kind of torn between that wanting to to learn about things but also just being like oh wow look how nature takes over buildings as you know it's left to decay I just find that really interesting Despite what happened here, it may surprise you to know that the power plant was still in use in some form until a couple of years ago. It was decommissioned in 2015, the year after my visit, though the other reactors in place had been switched off by 2000. Reactor number two, incidentally, was shut down due to a fire in 1991, an incident that ended far better than its neighbour. The explosion that took place in reactor number four, um, while this put one reactor out of action quite terminally, it didn't stop the operation of the other reactors even at the time, save for the brief shutdown of number three in the immediate aftermath. Although, as the incident occurred under the overview of the Soviet Union, a government notoriously reluctant to tell anyone what was going on, especially its own citizens, the exact operation schedule of, say, reactor number two at the time, may well never be known. But anyway, operationally, there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the rest of the power plant, other than, you know, having been blasted with lethal radiation. But since when does that stop the workers? So... In the medium term, it was business as usual. Although, since all the surrounding towns and villages had been evacuated, one wondered where everyone lived these days. Apparently in dorms. Temporarily. For two weeks on end. After the explosion, as part of the clean-up, the covering was placed over the reactor to contain it and prevent further radiation from leaking out. 
And as I say, at the time of my visit, this cover was coming to the end of its effective life, which was a maintenance issue more than anything else. And they were building a more solid and secure coat that would be effective for the better part of the 21st century. Nine years later, nothing's gone wrong yet. Though who knows what the radioactive equivalent of anti-vaxxers that make up an influential part of the Russian state will do. One thing about power plants in general, and nuclear power plants in particular, is their need for a good supply of water. It's no coincidence that the major nuclear power plants in the UK, like Sellafield, Dunray, Sizewell and Oldbury, are by the sea. Chernobyl is very much inland, but it's built next to the Pripyat River and surrounded by a huge lake. One of the interesting points about this lake is that it's filled with catfish. The workers will sit on the quayside and go fishing for them, and there's even a sign, in English, explaining how to feed the catfish. And this opens the question of, would you eat any fish caught in the surrounding waters of a nuclear power plant, especially one in a country whose commitment to health and safety is somewhat dubious? You may be pleased to know that the food we ate in the canteen on site was chicken. Well, I assume it was chicken. That's what it looked like at any rate. Chicken with rice, salad, bread and juice. The canteen looked exactly like the canteen at any other industrial building, plain and formica. The only difference between it and the average works unit in the UK is the turnstile on entry that's attached to a radioactivity detector, making sure that you yourself are not bringing any contaminated particles or dust into a clean area. Because electrons respect man-made borders, obviously. Outside the reactor that blew up is a memorial. It's two hands holding what appears to be a cuboidal building below a bell. It was installed in 2006 on the 20th anniversary of the construction of the original shelter covering for the reactor and is, like many of the others, dedicated to those who undertook the clean-up of the site after the explosion. And these were called the liquidators, which brings to mind more a 1960s scar tune than anything else, I'll be honest. Jane had a chilling thought about them on her trip. Another thing I hadn't appreciated was the role of the liquidators in making the plant and ultimately the planet safe. These 600,000 people risked their lives in the fight to secure the plant. It sounds horrific sending brave young women and men into such a dangerous situation where they were risking their lives. But that's what happens in a war, and that's basically what this is. A war against radiation, and it's a war that had to be won. Whenever anyone thinks of visiting Chernobyl, though, it's not the power plant itself that comes first to mind. Rather, it's the pictures and video they've seen of the town covered in trees where weeds and vines have pushed through the cement roads and pretty much swallowed up the concrete of the tower blocks. And the fairground. It's always the bloody fairground. Conversely, many people may have recognised or associated it with from playing too much Call of Duty 4. Given that we overnighted in Chernobyl City, you may be forgiven for thinking these pictures are from there and that everything is called Chernobyl. It is not. I'll talk more about that later. In fact, the main town serving Chernobyl was called Pripyat. Indeed, the town itself was built specifically to serve the power plant, which is only a couple of kilometres away. This was generally the way the Soviets designed places. They saw a need for an industry, in this case energy, built a factory or other industrial complex to take advantage of that need, in this case a power plant, then built a town to serve that complex, in this case Pripyat. The Soviet Union was full of towns and cities like these, especially in Siberia and the Russian Far East. Places built specifically to harness mining, shipbuilding, space exploration, nuclear warfare, steelmaking, pretty much anything that would give them a boost in their rivalry with the West. Unsurprisingly, most of these places were designated closed cities, places completely closed off to foreigners and where even Soviet citizens needed specific permissions to go, generally not officially listed on maps and given names in public, in so much as anything public was revealed about them, like Chelyabinsk 40 to obfuscate them even more. If a railway passed through them, there are tales of the train crew closing and securing the blinds and not making any announcements on the tannoy. Some of them are still closed, incidentally, including Chelyabinsk 40, which is now called Azorsk and is a big nuclear weapons site. Good luck if you want to go there. Maybe Google Street View will help. You can visit Pripyat, though only probably because A, it's in Ukraine, and B, it blew up so no one lives there. Incidentally, there seems to be a small belief Pripyat was built in the days immediately before the explosion and the town had only just been settled when it was evacuated. This is not true. However, what does seem to be true is the iconic fairground, of which more later, hadn't been officially opened by the time of the explosion. This was scheduled for the May Day celebrations the following Thursday. The town itself was founded in early 1970. And there's a sign on the way in that really leans into this period of typographic style. 
We're not talking a small white sign on a pole here. No, on the way into Pripyat, there's a huge sculptured rendition of the name in a very 1960s, 70s futuristic font. If you look at many of the posters of the 1960s, especially from the Soviet bloc, you'll very much strongly get a sense of this futurism, especially when it's talking about space travel. It looks painfully nostalgic now, as future setting often does. It's named after the nearby river, whose etymology isn't known with 100% certainty, but Wikipedia tells me the dominant explanation is a word meaning simply tributary. It flows into the Dnieper, one of the major rivers of Ukraine, and the fourth longest river in Europe, for a given definition of Europe. One of the first things you notice about Pripyat and the exclusion zone is that it is not empty. Animals don't acknowledge human boundaries unless there's an impenetrable barrier which has completely blocked an area off and which have been present for more than a couple of generations. It's interesting to look at some creatures like deer who, to this day, don't cross the former route of the Iron Curtain. The area around the Pripyat sign is popular with horses who gamble on the railway line. I don't know how many trains still use that line, but they don't seem to care. Both Helen and Jess, on their visit, got closer to the animals than I did. Mainly stray dogs. We were told uh, not to like, pet any of the stray dogs that were around. There were a lot of stray dogs, which I think were quite well fed by the local um, workers. Um, but we were told don't let them jump up at you, don't pet them, because they, the main place where the radiation uh, could be highest is in like the dirt um, in the ground. And obviously the dogs pick up the dirt on their paws and stuff. But God, some of the dogs were so cute. And when we like would arrive at places, they're obviously used to some tourists giving them food. Because when we arrived at one of the sites, a dog just jumped right up at me. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, I can't pet you. Like, get away. Um, so that was, a, that was a strange thing to have to do. I know you shouldn't pet stray dogs anyway, but gosh, it's so difficult sometimes, isn't it? So that was a strange thing. And you do go through these like uh, radiation detectors as you leave, um, just in case you're particularly radioactive. Um, obviously, nothing was picked up for me or my friends. We saw lots of feral dogs. They congregate around the power station canteen, where workers, and some visitors, smuggle them food, despite the warning notices to the contrary. We were advised not to pet them, not because they might bite, in case they'd been rolling in a radioactive hotspot. We also encountered a semi-tame fox. He'd injured his leg and been cared for by the checkpoint guards. Our guide held out the Geiger counter to make sure that he was not radioactive before we were allowed to meet him. The town itself looks exactly as you expect and imagine, having seen the pictures in the video. They've not been doctored or photoshopped. I mean, maybe they have, but they don't really need to have been. And indeed, it probably looks even more Pripyati now than even they show. It's a great control cell in a way to demonstrate what would happen if humans suddenly disappeared from the world, as per that TV series, Life After People. Even as soon as entering the town in our minivan, it was clear this was truly an abandoned place. A long cement road lined with huge trees either side, and which was littered with weeds and trees growing through the road surface, literally. And even though it had only been 30 years since the accident when I went, they, well, they towered above me. At some point they might turn into an air traffic control hazard. A tour of Pripyat will take you to a number of buildings. My tour could go in a few of them, as we'll hear later. I don't know if that's the same now, other things being equal and Russia not being militaristic, since no one's doing maintenance of them, so they are literally falling down. At some point it will be no longer safe to enter them. I mean, when you're in a fallout zone from nuclear fallout, safety is the number one priority, right? As a side note, the group had a couple of Geiger counters, more for an, oh, that's a big number, selfies than anything else. Although not the first place we went to in the town, I ought to talk about the fairground first, since that's the one spot everyone seems to recognise and associate with Pripyat. Especially the big wheel thing. It is just as eerie as you imagine, and I'm kind of surprised the rusted joints haven't snapped yet and it's not gone rolling down the road to Chernobyl. The cabins at the top of the wheel are, were, above the tree line, though even if you could kick start it, it wouldn't be the best view in Pripyat. The wheel itself definitely looks iconic, stationary yet still clearly identifiable in the trees and the broken cement, and yellow. The payment kiosk was still present on my visit, though obviously no longer serving any purpose, and you couldn't buy tickets for it. Nearby was what remained of the Dodgem car store. While the roof itself had long gone, it was clear to see where it had been as the metal framework that supported it was still in place, no longer protecting the cars from the elements, but patiently waiting for a hood to return. 
What remained to the ceiling is now in broken debris on the weed-covered ground. The dodging cars themselves are still present, still coloured in vibrant greens and yellows, though this is fading and chipping off. They've all stopped in position, a couple going to the grave in a permanent nose-boop position, like all good dodging cars should be. The steering wheels are present but have long since broken off and lying in the passenger seat like a bad date. Other fairground rides were equally as derelict, including what remained of a whirly gig, only the bare metal frame once again remaining but clearly identifiable as a place where lunch returns to irk its consumer. On the ground nearby was the remains of a leather boot cast aside on the floor. Maybe it had fallen off on its owner on one of the more vibrant rides. This is no longer a place to be shoeless, though. The debris and broken fixtures and fittings will put paid to that idea. There was also a swing, again just the ghostly outline and a steel bone, nothing attached to it anymore. What had been there had fallen to the floor and broken apart long ago. Now, I said about potential views from the top of the big wheel. The best views of Pripyat are from the top of the large tower blocks where everyone lived. I'm almost certain this isn't a view that you can get any more, and to be honest, I'm not sure we should have been up there even when we went, but what's health and safety in a nuclear fallout zone in a Soviet Republic? Disclaimer, this is a joke, but it must be said, one made with the easy-to-fall-into attitude that pervaded much of the Soviet Union. Helen had the same thoughts about health and safety when she visited. Nikolai warned us not to step on any moss as it soaks up radioactivity, demonstrating with a Geiger counter which bleeped obligingly. Nikolai's job as our guide in the Chernobyl exclusion zone was to keep us safe from radiation, ensuring that we avoided any hotspots in the otherwise safe areas. His attitude to other health and safety issues was, by UK standards, refreshingly relaxed. We picked our way through the abandoned town of Pripyat over broken glass and up-crumbling stairways. So what if the floor had a hole with a tree growing through it? The other side of the room was fine. I had a couple of visitors fall through the stage, so we don't go in here anymore, Nikolai observed casually as we looked into what had once been the auditorium of the theatre. The tower blocks themselves are standard issue for the time and place, and all generally look the same from outside, the only difference being the height. So many rise to about five storeys, while others climb above the trees and reach to the mid-teens. Inside, they're all much of a muchness. If you listened to my last episode on the Cathcart Circle, you'll have heard me talk about the tenement blocks in Glasgow. These in Pripyat are a different style in the sense that they tend to be standalone rather than cover an entire street and considerably less aesthetic, being made out of grey concrete rather than red sandstone. But they're fundamentally the same kind of principle. A little basic, pretty comfortable, all built to the same standard, so everyone lives in the same type of flat, very socialist and utilitarian. They've got two bedrooms, bathroom, kitchen, all mod cons, including bookshelves, cooking facilities and a TV. There's enough space to not feel cramped and bear in mind the target market, if such a concept would exist in a planned economy. For these flats would be, generally, a married couple with a kid, a worker and a housewife, and yes, probably specifically a housewife, because this was the 1970s and 1980s and gender expectations were much stronger. Anyway, they'd have had a quite a nice life here, especially if no, they'd have been transferred here and the idea would have been to make as much nice environment as possible. Hence the fairground. Liverpool didn't have a fairground in my youth, and Liverpool's much bigger than Pripyat. The ups and downs of being an Everton supporter don't count. Anyway... We went into one of the 15-storey tower block and had a wander through it. It was all looted and quite derelict, with nothing much left of any provenance. In one flat, someone had left a shoe, not that there's a pattern here. In another, the TV remained, and in the third was a broken and dusty piano. It seemed a bit highbrow for a Soviet worker flat, to be honest, and I thought they'd have been more prevalent in the communal areas. There was broken glass everywhere, and certainly nothing would have worked, even if there'd been power. Not even the lifts. It was better to stay far away from the lift shaft. The remains of a creature, probably a dog, were present in one room. Evidently it had wandered up and not been able to get back out. This was presumably some years after the evacuation. We didn't just wander inside the tower block though. As you heard, we were able to get onto the roof and stand on it, looking out over the city. Now this was a view. Well above the tree line, the town below looking almost elvish, in the sense that there were buildings almost hidden amongst the newly grown forest. I think the phrase nestled quaintly was created for this very situation, to be honest and the extent of the forest was clear to see, apart from the power plant itself and, in the far distance, a weird metallic frame structure visible on the horizon. All that was in sight were green treetops. It must be said there were no guardrails or anything like that on the rooftop, so standing near the edge was not advisable. You may be pleased to know I did not do anything like that. Others may well have done. I have no memory of that. As befits a town of its size and importance, Pripyat had a number of other buildings that served the community and now lie in ruins. The first one we went to was a large restaurant, 
And now I'm trying to picture the Cumbernauld Weatherspoons as a tourist attraction in the post-apocalyptic world. Cumbernauld is a very odd place, and that might be the subject of a future pod. Anyway, as you'll no doubt be expecting me to say, the place was quite ruinous and debris-stricken. The tables were upturned and broken, having smashed into the concrete tiling. Much of the infrastructure was still in place and identifiable, even down to the remnants of the overhead signage, though what it had once said is not something I'd be able to tell you. Other facilities were in similar levels of disrepair. The university had a lecture room that was still identifiable, with terraced pews heading down a slope towards the central stage, although it very much looked as though the roof had literally caved in with how much of it was present on the seating. For some reason, there was also a piano present here, though whether it worked or not, we don't know. This didn't seem like the time nor the place to break out into Prokofiev's second piano concerto. The hospital and doctor surgery still had health posters and opening times on the wall, and the doctor's ledgers with information written on them, not too faded even after 30 years. The waiting room still had chairs along the walls, empty, waiting in vain for new patients to sit and be checked up for, I don't know, signs of leukaemia or something. For some reason there was also a rusting bike frame on the floor, maybe one of the last patients had cycled in to see a doctor. This was also the place where some medical clothing had remained, nothing more than a discarded piece of cloth or fabric, but the Geiger counters recorded figures that suggested wearing it for more than approximately five minutes would kill you. Evidently, radioactivity stays longer in clothing than the national environment. Does that mean that if you're in danger of nuclear attack, you should get naked? That's a question for another time. Other buildings had scattered paintings of Soviet leaders, copied of Pravda dated to the days around the explosion, broken and empty vending machines whose words had long since pilfered. Though whether there had been before or after their used-by dates is anyone's guess. I'd suggest their best before dates would have been realistically, specifically, the time of the disaster. Outside in the streets were the occasional shopping trolleys, long since warped and no longer usable, not even as makeshift dodgems. We also went into the school, a precarious journey even at the time of my visit, and I'd suggest it's probably no longer accessible due to trees and the sheer fragility of the structure. There were many rooms across several floors, but it all felt generally the same. Murals on the walls, textbooks and exercise books left where they'd fallen, desks littered with the schoolwork children had been working on at the time of the evacuation, still open at the pages they'd been using. Some of the rooms had had the remains of educational posters, lesson plans, and even orange chalkboards with whatever the teachers had been talking about still written on them. One room had children's paintings and other art, another pictures of the natural world, mainly animals, and a third a three-dimensional map of the Soviet Union. In amongst the debris too were vinyl records. I'm going to guess they were playtime songs rather than the latest release by Nautilus Pompilius. There was also a large collection of gas masks on the floor of a couple of the rooms. Apparently this was a later addition to the mess rather than being relevant to the immediate matters at hand. Elsewhere in the town were the sports facilities. The stadium was kind of the opposite to that at Kaskin Park, where not here the terracing was largely clear, if a bit weedy, and you could still easily walk up and down it to find a place to sit, while it was the pitch that was lost in overgrowth. Above part of the terracing, there was still a stone roof in place, providing some shelter for the dignitaries. Outside, the turnstiles were firmly shut, but as the fences either side had long since gone, they weren't holding back any crowds desperate to watch a match. What of, I don't know. Is tree climbing a sport? Nearby was the sports hall, containing a basketball court with hoops still present, but no balls, and the swimming pool, last used by the clean-up brigade, I believe, though it may have been used by subsequent staff passing through around the turn of the century. It looked really weird to see an empty pool, specifically to see clearly how the floor slopes down from the shallow to the deep ends. It's not a gradual thing here. The shallow end had a flat bottom, then it suddenly dropped sharply. I avoid swimming pools in general, so I don't know if that's common. Still present poolside were the diving board, the timing clock and the changing rooms, though I doubt any of them would be usable again. Jane's feelings on seeing Pripyat were more centred on the communist vibe. My first impression upon entering the exclusion zone was of time standing still. The accident took place on the 26th of April, just a few days before the 1st of May, International Workers' Day, which was a big event in the Soviet calendar. You can still see the decorations hanging on the streetlights and around the iconic fun fair, which was due to open for the first time on May Day. My second impression was of an era standing still. A Lenin statue takes pride of place in the main street in Chernobyl and there are plenty of red stars and other remnants of communism, long since disposed of in most of Eastern Europe. I went to university behind the Iron Curtain in the 80s. So it was a bit like walking into a time warp. I feel a bit like Marty in Back to the Future. Except for one major factor, here nature has regained control. There are trees, 
growing out of the middle of buildings and reclaiming the concrete jungle. In fact, wildlife is in abundance here in this people-free zone with lynx, bears and bison all now living in the zone. Jessie's thoughts were affected by the time of year she went. And then we also visited the nearby town of Pripyat and that was um, very eerie and strange to walk around. Um, And especially where it was winter, we had a little bit of snow and I think snow affects how sound moves through the air. So it was just deadly quiet, which really like made it very atmospheric. While Helen had the same feeling as me on how long it'll all last, the best time to visit Pripyat was probably about eight years ago. Exploring the town of Pripyat was rather like stepping into episode one of a post-apocalyptic sci-fi serial. Established in 1970 as a home for the workers at the Chernobyl nuclear power complex, with modern amenities and leisure facilities, 30 or so years after it was completely abandoned, nature is well on the way to reclaiming Pripyat. Shops, apartment buildings and leisure facilities are slowly decaying. Every year there is less to see. It is important, very important in fact, to note that although the town is pretty much a decrepit, derelict, demolished hulk, none of the actual damage was done at the time. Indeed, as stated, most of the residents didn't even know anything had happened at first. This wasn't a Hiroshima-type event causing regional-wide destruction. Rather, the vast majority of the danger was through invisible radiation, the fires of the plant never reaching much beyond the reactor itself. Rather, the look and feel of the town is caused mostly by the effects of nature reclaiming it having been abandoned and a little bit by ongoing looting in the years afterwards. Remember that most of the townspeople left their possessions behind as their evacuation was meant to be temporary, so a good chunk of people's stuff was effectively left in unguarded empty properties. So the reason there's very few items of value or use in the town and that every building is empty is because in the years after the explosion, people nicked it all. Each tour apparently takes a slightly different route depending on conditions, and sadly we didn't get to visit the railway station, which I've been informed contains numerous abandoned carriages and wagons, as well as, you know, being a dead railway station, which is something I always approve of. Comparisons with IBM Holt are therefore not possible, though I'd imagine Pripyat Station would have been considerably bigger. Instead, however, we got to go to a very different place, which probably excited me even more. One of the places on our tour is known as Chernobyl 2. This is a huge piece of metal hidden deep in the forest and labelled on maps and signposts on the way at the time as a children's home. It's 11 kilometres outside Pripyat in a straight line and down a 7 kilometre-ish road through the trees off the main road between Pripyat and Chernobyl City. It really is quite deep in the forest, almost as if they wanted to hide the fact that it wasn't really a children's home. As an aside note, you can, as I mentioned earlier, see it on the horizon from the top of the tower blocks in Pripyat. So as secret sites go, it's not exactly perfect, especially as back in the day I'd imagine there was less forest cover. Oh, what's that metal frame in the distance that looks like a radiator? Comrade, that is a children's home. It, it, it clearly isn't. Are you saying the party lies? Off to Siberia with you. It's about 700 metres long and 150 metres high. It's not something you can just sweep under the arboreal carpet. Anyway... It was never officially revealed at the time what this huge chunk of metal in the forest actually was, although, as it's clearly not populated by small people, you know, could be anything. However, most people in the West at the time believed it was an over-the-horizon radar array, and this has since been confirmed by the release of Soviet-era documentation. My knowledge of physics isn't great. It was never a subject I found interesting, but that's what happens when you have the same teacher for four years who dislikes you. As such, I suggest doing your own research on what over-the-horizon radar is and how it works. As far as I can gather, though, radar involves firing radio waves into the sky. And if they bounce back, well, you've found yourself an object. Normal radio waves, though, travel in straight lines, which means that since the Earth is curved, you can only detect something in your line of sight. Otherwise, the wave carries in a straight line into the atmosphere and away. An over-the-horizon radar is one that uses simple physics no idea how, to bounce the radio waves off the sky, thus allowing them to travel much further around the Earth. There's another method using very long-wave radio waves along the ground, but this works better at sea, so is used for detecting submarines rather than aircraft. And doing this all effectively requires large computing power and even larger transmitters and receivers located close to, but still some distance from each other. In this case, the array at Chernobyl is part of the Duga-1 array, Duga meaning arc, and is the receiver of the two. The transmitter was 57 kilometres northeast, just north of Slavutich, as it happens. 
One of the side effects of using radio waves in radar is that they can be picked up as transmissions on radio sets. The best frequencies for over-the-horizon radar seem to be in the low megahertz range in what's commonly known as shortwave radio, similar to those used by amateur and CB radio and air traffic control. The Duger array's power output was estimated at around 10 megawatts. This led to an unfortunate side effect, which affected the Soviets in the same way as it affected the West. It was dubbed the Russian woodpecker. What was picked up by radio operators was a constant and repetitive buzz at regular intervals, several times a second, similar to how a woodpecker would sound, hence the name. The problem was the signal was strong enough to leak over several frequencies and affect and be louder than other broadcasts, making that wavelength range virtually unusable, to the extent that people ended up having to manufacture woodpecker-proof radio systems. In radio culture, the Russian woodpecker became synonymous with other shortwave broadcasts like number stations, spies, allegedly, and other weird radio broadcasts like UZB-76, the buzzer, and letter beacons of repeating Morse code that translate into a letter, e.g. R. This may or may not be a way to essentially keep that frequency clear for someone like the Russian military to use and ensure that no one else could broadcast on it. I've talked about number stations and similar before on my pod in one of those it's the pandemic, I don't have anything else to talk about, so let's hyper-focus episodes. But I do find all of that kind of thing actually really fascinating. Mysterious radio noise and the like. So it was incredibly interesting to visit a site at the centre of that kind of mysterious operation. And also very nostalgic for me. And I must say, a pleasant surprise. I didn't know we were going there until we did. As an aside, it was built where it was, not just because it was in a relatively remote area of the Western Soviet Union, close to the west, surrounded by trees, but also because it was close to the Chernobyl power plant. The two came as an item, in a sense, because it's believed that a third of the entire output of the power plant was used by an array. Over-the-horizon radar takes a lot of power, as you would when you've got a radar array that's that big. The site itself was quite well protected. The road to it ends at two sets of huge gates, each embossed with a metallic five-pointed star of the kind so beloved of communist aesthetic. One set of the gates was very much suffering in the years since abandonment, the others were still quite solid. At the array are a couple of buildings that wouldn't look out of place in the 1970s ex-polytechnic. One was large and white, the other quite low-rise and built of orange brick, both very cuboid in shape, whose only decoration was a large number of windows. Because obviously anything stylistic is the work of decadence and doesn't meet strict utilitarian standards. To be honest, mind you, sometimes I can see their argument. Outside the buildings are the now standard series of abandoned vehicles, many quite heavy duty, all in various states of disrepair, and almost certainly undrivable. Inside the buildings are long, wide corridors, some of which have had floor collapses, so you have to walk along the supports and foundations. The walls are, like everywhere else, pretty damaged, with bits falling off everywhere. There's not much light in these buildings, as the windows are quite small and often quite distant. The roof seems to be falling down, or at least the insulation is falling through the metallic beams holding it all up. I can't help but wonder, obviously, about the presence of asbestos, but one assumes that if it were present in dangerous levels here, they wouldn't let us in in the rehearsed place, right? In some of the rooms are pipes and other various metallic objects of unclear provenance, sadly none of which are humming eerily or glowing green, while scattered on the floor are the erect remains of electronic equipment, like keyboards, with the circuit boards clearly visible. Worn-out signs in Russian, some slightly faded, may have once told you what everything did, but more likely there was some kind of motivational poster. And by motivational, I mean glory to the motherland, rather than zhivi smiesa lyubi. Maybe they're telling you not to touch anything unless authorised. But if there's something you learn from playing video games, like Call of Duty 4, it's to go nowhere near any pipes, wires or unlabeled metal objects. The main control room still exists and looks like something straight out of a 1970s sci-fi movie after the heroes have blown it up. There's large block cabinets housing control panels in futuristic grey, covered with switches, buttons and long broken LEDs. Instructions still line the walls, urging long-gone operators to initiate the correct sequence lest the missiles be launched. That's probably not true, but who knows what secrets lurk underneath a children's home. The floor is covered in wires, pulled out from their casings and plopped on the floor, while everywhere there's broken pieces of metal, shards, screws, nails, broken glass, amongst other detritus. Somewhere in here might be still a live microphone I can use to recreate a number station and confuse the heck out of listening radio hams, but I can't find it. What I do find is a weird, what can best be described as a 1970s space-age diorama, the sort of thing that two parents would make out of cardboard the night before a primary school assembly. 
It's of the top third of the earth, a flat-rendered arc, with a progressively darker night sky above it, dotted with stars. It was fascinating to see somewhere this notable close-up, especially given the nature of the site meant for decades it didn't even officially exist, never mind wasn't accessible, and therefore has a very strong sense of mystery and, yes, adventure to me. In fairness, much of the ex-Soviet Union is a bit like that to me, somewhere just out of reach that we knew we'd never be able to get to, but we knew existed, and that the people there would never be able to get to us, which is why places like this hold a special interest for me. It's that feeling that this is off-limits, like most abandoned places, like, you know, derelict business parks in Scotland, but doubly so, because it's an abandoned place that was already impossible to reach, and which had that aura of, but what's really going on there? What's it all about? There's almost certainly a whole host of secrets still unrevealed, and maybe that adds to the feeling of adventure. While much of the impression of the Chernobyl disaster concentrates on the town of Pripyat, and with good reason, because it was the town specifically built to serve the power plant, there are many other towns and villages around that were affected. One of the most notable was Chernobyl City itself. And despite its name, it lies a bit further from the power plant, about 15 kilometres away. It is, however, much more of a functioning city rather than an accidental nature reserve. And, as I say, it was the site of the hotel we all stayed in for one night. Granted, there's not much to the town anymore, but it serves as the administrative centre of the region, the place where tour groups base themselves, and, outside of those tour groups and the workers of the plant itself, the place where you're most likely to see other people. These days, much of the town is dedicated to the remembrance of the disaster. There's several sculptures and other memorials to those who died, including a stone set in the grass with three flat tablets above it. These tablets list everyone who's reported to have died in the accident. That's a small number compared to the number of people that probably died as a result of the accident, but hey, paperwork. And from above, the whole thing is built to look like the symbol of radioactivity. There's also a, and the best way to describe it is, very Soviet, memorial specifically to the cleanup crew, with meticulously carved humans depicting as fighting the fire. I believe the style is called socialist realist art, and it's very common in communist countries, centering the working man in his struggle against the natural world. Conversely, elsewhere in the town centre is a weird sculpture made of thin poles of metal that look like an angel blowing a trumpet. This is apparently a reference to the wormwood of the Bible, which turned a third of the world's water green and bitter, and feels, to me, slightly awkward, I must say. One quite poignant part of the memorials is a path with signposts either side, the sort of signposts you find when you enter and leave a town or village except these signposts depict all the places that were abandoned after the disaster, or at least within the exclusion zones. Everyone knows of Pripyat, but there were hundreds of other places affected, mostly small villages, true, but they all count. They all had people living in them that were forced to move on elsewhere. The signs have the white welcome boards on one side and the black you are now leaving boards on the other with the town names struck through. They would have been the signs you would saw had you been passing through in reality before it all happened. Chernobyl City also has a church. It's a very pretty building built in the traditional style of Russian Orthodoxy, with the golden domes, and it's quite colourful, especially pastel blue. It's the Church of St Elijah, and it dates from 1877, having built on the site of two previous churches, which both burned down earlier in the 1800s. There's a fire theme developing here. It's not open very often, but it still serves as the mother church for everyone who used to live nearby, but who have since been relocated. So when it does open, it's very popular. Many people make specific journeys here to pay their regards to the dead relatives in their old hometowns who are still buried in the churchyard nearby, but because the site is in the exclusion zone, most of the time they don't have access. Around Chernobyl City are any number of abandoned buildings. One we went to, indeed it was the first building we entered on the tour, is an old school nursery or children's home. A genuine children's home, I mean, not a front for a huge metal antenna. It's a very eerie place and served as quite the introduction to the rest of the region. Obviously it's in ruins, it's very much falling down, there's dust everywhere, there's posters ripped and peeling off the walls, and there's metal framed bunk beds, well cots I guess maybe, all bedding and soft furnishing long since gone. But what makes it all the more hitting are the small things. Toys scattered around, plastic 1980s dolls lying on the bed frames, perhaps decades since they were last held, will pass over the thought that they've been placed there on purpose for a photo opportunity. They're still here. They're still unloved. One shoe discarded on the floor. There's a shock. And on one of the window ledges, a teddy bear in the form of a rabbit. Abandoned. Abandoned by whom? We don't know, but still abandoned. And never to be loved again. 
What may surprise you is the exclusion zone itself isn't completely abandoned by people, or at least it wasn't on my visit. A couple of those who used to live in the area before the accident moved back a few years afterwards. This was much to the annoyance of the local authorities, but while they expressed their strong dissatisfaction, didn't manage to actually re-evict any of them. Maybe because they felt it was too much hassle, maybe because they felt, eh, well, if they want to move back, that's their funeral. On their visit, Jess and Helen both met people who had moved back. I wonder if it was the same person. Oh, one other thing that we did whilst in the exclusion zone is our guide knew an elderly man that lived in um, a nearby town, I guess you would call it. I don't even think you can call it a town. Um, But he lived within the exclusion zone and had never left. Even when the government ordered people to, he did not leave. So that was really fascinating to go and visit him um, for an hour or so in the afternoon. Um, And that was great because it's obviously something you couldn't do by yourself or not without a Ukrainian uh, guide to translate. So um, we had a little chat to him and, yeah, he was adamant. He did not want to move out of his home, um, which I suppose is fair enough. Um, But, yeah, he's lived into his 80s um, and hadn't died of radiation-related diseases. So um, I suppose it didn't affect every single person that stayed in the area. But, yeah, obviously would have been hugely dangerous for him to stay. But he did. so that was fascinating. Our first stop in the exclusion zone was an abandoned village called Zalicia, the largest of the abandoned villages in the zone. It was completely overgrown. Nikolai, our guide, told us that until the previous winter, a retired school teacher had been living there. She lived to the grand old age of 87. Most of the settlers who returned to the zone lived into their 80s. Later, we met Ivan who told us that he had moved back in 1988, as the town to which he had been evacuated had more radioactivity and poorer housing. His village was in a clean area of the zone, and the house, which he built himself, was free from draughts. He grew all his own vegetables and chopped his own wood, and certainly looked very well on it. We also met up with one of these people, well two actually, an elderly husband and a wife, whose names I sadly don't remember, because I never made a note of them at the time. They'd been evacuated along with everyone else just after the accident, but the husband had come back as part of the clean-up operation and, well, stayed. His wife joined him later. They'd built up a little cottage in the woods and turned it into quite a small-scale self-sufficient farm with animals and crops. They also had pet cats and a dog. They didn't seem to have any ill effects from living there, and remember, my visit was some 28 years after the explosion and they'd been there for most of them. I mean, they're all probably dead now, given that it was nine years ago, but who knows? In their yard, they had several of the vehicles used in the clean-up, not necessarily in use anymore, but certainly in a decent enough condition to climb on and poke around in. Which we did, because when next would I get to sit on an adapted tank covered in radioactive dust? I am not a role model. Well, that's about all for this pod. Join me next time for another adventure beyond Beyond the the brush. Until then, don't get arrested for trespassing or espionage. And if you're feeling off-colour, Keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.